You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. You may be seated. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Welcome to Redeemer. Glad that you guys are here this morning. Um, I'm excited about our text today. Uh, If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you as well. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I get to lead us in vision and preaching. And um, Man, this series in Mark has just been so good for me, for my heart, for my soul to consider Jesus, who he really is, what he's really like, what he's done for us. And I hope it's been good for you as well. I hope that you have been uh, blessed by taking a fresh look at Jesus. I also want to welcome the kiddos. I know we have kiddos in here with us this morning. Kiddos, glad that you're here. I hope you never feel like an interruption. Um, you, dra- you drop a clip- clipboard all you want in here. You can, um, you, can, you can talk a little bit. It's okay. I promise there's nothing that would be the kind of interruption that we see in our text today when Jesus is preaching a sermon and some guys start to bust through the roof. All right, so, um, so kiddos, glad that you're here with us as well this morning. Um, we left off last week at the end of chapter 1, and we see that Jesus touches and heals a leper. It was an amazing, it's an amazing scene that has a lot of important meaning. And so if you, um, if you were here with us last week, we looked at that. And now most people who touch a leper, their social circle is going to get a lot smaller. But this is not the case for Jesus. Um, Jesus' um, following actually even intensifies after this. Uh, he retreats to the desolate places. The text tells us to even kind of withdraw from the, the, the crowds and things maybe are even uh, getting a little bit too ramped up. And so he withdraws. But it, the text tells us that people go out after him. They seek him out. And so not only is Jesus' uh, following uh, growing and intensifying, but it's important that we recognize something that's subtle in the text today. The text today actually tells us that his following is even diversifying. So what I mean by that is that it's not just suffering and sick people that are coming out, seeking out Jesus, but there are also spiritual seekers who are coming out to follow Jesus, to consider who, who is this Jesus? We've heard about what he's been doing. Who is this man? But there are religious leaders now who are coming out, following Jesus, coming to check him out. Who is this Jesus? What does he do? What does he, what does he intend? There are obviously everyday curious people as well who are coming out. And all of these people are gathered in our text today, crowded around Jesus. And what our text highlights for us today is that though the crowds around Jesus are diversifying, they actually all have something in common. There's a common thread amongst the crowd, and it's that they are all looking for Jesus to fit their agenda. In other words, they're measuring Jesus up a bit. They're all coming with a job for Jesus, if you will. There's a job for him. There's an expectation for him. Each person coming kind of with their own agenda, with their own job, with their own ideas about maybe who Jesus could be for them, what he might mean for their lives. In fact, I want you to know that this is not just a them thing back in Jesus' days, but this is actually an us thing. This is a human being thing. That all of us have a, a frame, if you will. We all have a vision for the good life. What the good life looks like for us. And we all come to Jesus trying to see, can we fit Jesus into that frame? Can Jesus kind of fit into that frame? What can Jesus do for my life? We all come to Jesus with some sort of expectation, some sort of hope, some sort of job. 
whether we realize it or not. In fact, I love this quote from, from um, an author that I read this week. He, he writes this. He says, many of us start coming to God or going to church because we have problems and we are looking for God to give us the boost that we need to get back to saving ourselves. Maybe some of us start getting back into spiritual disciplines. Maybe we start getting back into prayer because we need God to get us over the hump in life so that we can find satisfaction in the things of this world. We all come to Jesus with different jobs, different motivations. This is where our text is going to take us today. It's going to bring in the question into view is how do we view Jesus? Why are we coming to him? What are we following him for? That's the question. Let's look back at the text starting in verse 1. Mark 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Mark has uh, been mostly focused in his gospel on Jesus' actions. He really hasn't given us much of Jesus' words. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 are the only words of Jesus that we've, that we've really gotten to this point. But Mark does want us to know that Jesus has spent a significant amount of time preaching and teaching. In other words, Mark doesn't want us to think that Jesus is just some miracle worker. He's a teacher. And now he's back in Capernaum, which is now his home. It's kind of become the base camp or ground zero for his ministry. And the text tells us that he is preaching the word to a packed house. In fact, you could look back at chapter 1, verse 39, and we see that Jesus had been on a preaching tour throughout all of Galilee. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus says, but he wants us to know that Jesus is preaching the word. He has a message. In chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, he tells us that the message is about the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God is arriving, that it's breaking in, that he is the one, he is the key to the kingdom. He's the one bringing God's salvation and God's rule to earth. That's what, when you hear kingdom of God in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. I know we don't live in a, in a kingdom, so we kind of, ideas of kings and kingdoms is a bit foreign. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing God's salvation and God's rule to earth. On earth as it is in heaven, Jesus prays. And so Jesus is teaching and he's preaching here he's in this packed house, and he's preaching most likely about the kingdom of God, who it's for, what it's like. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, Matthew's gospel gives us Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, kind of in the same frame of these two miracles, of the leper and then of this healing of a paralytic man. So Jesus has been teaching who the kingdom is for, what the kingdom is like, what it looks like when God's salvation and rule comes to earth, uh, who flourishes and who doesn't under the kingdom of God. This is, so it's likely that Jesus here in a packed house teaching about the kingdom of God. This is likely what's happening. Now, the average home in Capernaum would have fit probably maybe about 50 people maxed out standing, kind of standing room only, definitely no social distance going on in this church house here. They're packed into this house. It's likely that uh, the, the kind of home that Jesus most likely would have been in would have shared a courtyard with other homes. And so you can imagine that people are even probably standing outside listening in the courtyard through the doors and the windows. So 50 people, you know, probably more people in the courtyard. So this is a pretty good sized crowd that Jesus is talking to. So this is the scene. Jesus preaching a sermon, likely about the kingdom of God, to a packed house. And then suddenly the roof starts to be ripped open. Can you imagine this? I mean, just think about this. I mean, I'm preaching a sermon to you right now. And someone just starts busting in, in the middle of the word. I mean, what a scene. Look at verse 3. 
And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And so we've likely got debris falling, ropes dangling, a man on a mat descending. I mean, you're just like, what is, what's going on? And all of a sudden, here he comes. And we aren't sure how these people heard the news uh, about Jesus, heard the news that Jesus was in town, but it's obvious that they know about Jesus. It's obvious that they know what Jesus has been doing, that word about Jesus has spread. Who knows? Uh, maybe the leper comes running through their, through, you know, through, through their neighborhood. Uh, telling, last week we, we saw that the, the leper was kind of making Jesus go viral. Jesus told him not to talk about it, and he wouldn't stop talking about it. So who knows? And so, and so we don't know how they heard about this man, but they certainly know that Jesus has been healing, suffering people. And so they, they grab this paralytic man, perhaps one on each corner of his bed, and they start to make their way toward Jesus. When they get there, the crowd is too big, the house is too full. Uh, you, they can't even get to the door to get through the door. And so much like the leper that we looked at last week, they make a bold, desperate, risky move. They stake everything on a chance to get their friend before Jesus. In fact, I wonder if maybe it's even the paralytic man that's like on the mat. Friends are taking him before Jesus. They get there. Oh no, we're too late. And he's like, hey, take the stairs, you know? And so they go up the stairs. The, the typical home in Capernaum would have had a staircase along the side of the house to make it uh, uh, able to access the roof. And so they get there, they, they take the stairs. And look, here's the fascinating thing to me. Jesus doesn't stop them. You know, it's not like Jesus is as preaching and and all he's like, whoa, no, no. I mean, you hear people ripping branches off the roof and digging through mud and debris falling down, and Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't stop them. Now, here's the question that I want to ask at this point in the scene: Why are these men coming to Jesus? What do they want? What's the job that they have for Jesus? What do they want? Well, the obvious answer is healing, right? I mean, that's the obvious answer. That's what they want. This man wants to walk. This man wants to run. This man wants to roam the streets with his friends. He knows what he needs. And he's coming to Jesus with his need. You know, and I often make, it makes me think about how often you and I come to Jesus convinced that we know what we need. We have a vision for the good life for ourselves the good life for those that we love. We know what we need. And for this man and his friends, it was healing. But is, is, is that his deepest need? Is that his truest need? Is that what it is? Look what Jesus says to him. Look back to the text in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus sees their, their conviction. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Interesting. Don't overlook this. They just did something desperate. And they busted through the roof. And they're laying in front of Jesus. They have expectations. They've heard about what he's been doing. I imagine everyone standing around probably has some expectations too. Why do you think they're all gathered around there? They've heard what Jesus has been doing. He's been knocking out demons in the synagogues. He's healed a leper. Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the man's still sitting there. He's still sitting there on the mat, paralyzed. 
And there are some people who will say that they think that maybe Jesus is speaking kind of tongue-in-cheek here with Jesus. I mean, with this man, like what he's saying is like, hey, I forgive you for ripping a hole in my roof or in my mom's roof or in uh, Simon Peter's uh, mother-in-law's roof, whoever's home you think he's in. Uh, N.T. Wright thinks this is actually Jesus' home. Whatever, we don't know. But they, some people think that he's maybe going, hey, I forgive you for ripping a hole in my roof. But I don't think that's what's happening here at all, actually. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think what's happening is that Jesus is taking this man and his friends deeper. Jesus is most interested in taking this man and his friends and the people who are looking and listening to not the need, but to the need beneath the need, to the truest, deepest need, his sin. Now, we don't know if this man is paralyzed as a result of his sin or the consequential nature of his sin. We don't, we don't know, but we do know he's a sinner because we all are, right? And sin is when we look to or live for anything other than God. We break God's law because we look to and live for the creation rather than the creator. We take the good gifts of God and we make them ultimate things. We make them idols. This is sin. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that this man and his friends are looking to physical healing as their source of hope and life. If I could just get healed, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be at peace. He's so desperate for it, in fact, that he will rip open a roof to get it. That's how bad he wants it. And what Jesus wants him to see is that the only way that he will walk away this day from Jesus, truly at peace and truly satisfied, is if he walks away from Jesus with his sins forgiven. You see, the text calls into question here our ability as human beings to be managers of what is good for us. It calls into question our own authority. In other words, do we really know what we need? We think we know what we need. We all have a vision and a frame of the good life for ourselves and for others. But do we really know what it is that we truly need? In fact, we often let our own authority, when we're left to our own authority, here's often what we do. We actually often get desperate for the wrong things. For us, it could look maybe something like this. What I, what I need, what I really need is that next house. And then I will be satisfied. And then I'll be at peace. Then I'll be settled. And we can actually do some pretty desperate things in order to get it. We can overstretch ourselves and we can overspend in order to get there. Or maybe it's something like this. What I need is that, that next job, that better job with better pay or that better suits my interests and my skill set. And then, then I'll finally be happy and content and settled. And you might do anything to get it. You'll even uproot your family. Maybe you'll even make a drastic career change in order to get it. Or maybe it's something like this. What I need is I need that, that spouse. If I could just find that right person, then I'll be whole and I'll finally be happy and I'll finally be complete and you might do anything to get it. You might even settle or compromise. You might look over major character flaws in order to meet your own needs. Someone might say to you, but does, do they even love Jesus? And you go, well, yeah, I've never really seen them with the Bible, but yeah, I think so. I think so. When we get desperate to meet our own needs, we'll do just about anything. You see, we as human beings are often blinded to our true need, to the need beneath the need. What we really need is for our souls to be settled and satisfied in God. And until that happens, nothing will be enough. 
Did you know that this is a human reality? All of us have this in common. That we have these deep longings and cravings in our soul that we cannot satisfy. Did you know that? Something we all have in common. We were born with these deep longings and cravings to be fed and to be full and to be satisfied. And the Bible tells us that there is nothing under the sun that can satisfy us. It's not until you are in the fullness of the presence of God that your soul will stop hungering. That is your need beneath every other need. That you are hungry for more of God. You need more of God. You need the fullness of God. That's why the things that we seek after in this life are never enough. In fact, let's just say that Jesus, let's just say that Jesus heals this man without ever taking him deeper. Let's just say he does. That man walks out of that place happy, but for how long? How long until it's the next thing? And the next thing? And the next thing? How many people do you know that suffer, but yet are content and satisfied in God and God alone? So what I think is happening here is that I think that Jesus looks at this man And I think he actually looks at him with great compassion. Don't mishear me. I think he sees him with great compassion. I think he looks at him and he sees with the compassionate, loving heart of God. He sees what this man can't see. He sees the desperation of his soul to be satisfied in this life. He sees the desperation in his soul to be made whole. And he says to him, you're coming to the right place, but you're coming to the right place for the wrong thing. And the thing that you are coming for isn't even a bad thing. It's actually a good thing, but you've made it an ultimate thing. And so he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. What a moment. In fact, this scene, it actually reads as if Jesus doesn't have time to continue fleshing this out. I think, he, I think he intends to continue to flesh this out and even connect probably what he had been teaching about, likely the kingdom of God and what it's like and who it's for. And he wants to flesh this out with this man and maybe even as a lesson to the crowds. But then Jesus, it reads as if Jesus doesn't even really have time to kind of finish fleshing it out because over here in the corner up against the wall are a bunch of guys that kind of start getting passy-aggressy a little bit, you know, and they start throwing a little bit of a hissy fit over in the corner And Jesus, it's obvious to Jesus, right? I mean, sometimes I think Jesus, obviously, we believe Jesus knows their hearts. He knows all of our hearts. He perceives their thoughts. But I think it's probably just all over him. Like, everybody probably feels it. Like, I, I coach a lot of youth baseball. And there are times where, like, after the game, you know, you huddle up kids and parents. And you're talking to the kids and parents are circling around. And there are parents that they don't even have to say a word. And they're just like, you know, you... You can just feel it on him. You know, like they're telling you, you know, little Johnny should be playing more shortstop. And T-ball, he was really good. And you don't see little Johnny's skills. You, they don't even say a word, but I know what they're saying. You know, I think, I think that's probably what's going on here. I think other people in the room probably even feel it too. Look at what Jesus says. Look at, I mean, look at verse 6. Now, the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so, who are these scribes? Well, scribes were a special kind of religious leader. They would have been like the fact-finding, position paper writing, theological neatniks. They probably were the kind of guys who were like, they were, they, their job was to kind of call fouls and point out where people had gotten out of line and were wrong. And there's no doubt that what's happening here is that these scribes had been commissioned, almost like a task force, sent to put eyes on Jesus. Okay, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, verse 17, tells us, gives us this same scene. 
and says that there are scribes sent from, uh, from every place in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. That they're commissioned. It's like the religious leaders of the day are getting a little bit nervous. They've heard about what Jesus is doing. Maybe claims that he could be the Messiah. Maybe he's Elijah. He's doing these amazing miracles. Who is this guy? Go check it out. And so they've sent them to go check it out. And so they're coming to follow Jesus. Maybe a little bit like, hey, maybe we'll see a miracle today. That could be kind of cool. Let's see what he's going to say. Let's see if we can get him in trouble. Call some fouls. Blow some whistles here. There's no doubt that that's why they are there. And so these guys likely are expecting to see Jesus do what he has done so many other times and heal this man. They're waiting for it. Here it comes. He's going to heal him. But then he doesn't. Instead, he says, I forgive your sins. And when he says this, sirens start going off. It trips some wires for these guys, so much so that it becomes visible. The scribes, they assume that they are the ones in the room with the utmost authority. They're the ones who know God and his law more than anyone else in this room. Only God can forgive sins. And there's a particular way in which God can forgive sins. This guy's a teacher. He's not a priest. We're in a home. We're not in the temple. Who does he think he is? He's a blasphemer. We got him. And Jesus picks up on all of this and he speaks directly to it. Look at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and take up your bed and walk? Jesus is over here, I, I think, talking to the paralytic. You know, he, he has an intention. He wants to use this as an opportunity to teach, take him deeper, take the other people deeper. And then he's over here and he goes, he kind of gives him a little bit of a would you rather, actually. You know, would you rather I say, uh, your sins are forgiven? Would you rather say, take up your bed and walk? What's your problem? What's going on here? That's what I think is, is likely happening. And it's a little bit of a puzzling question. Which is easier? It's a little bit of a puzzling question. Here's what I think he's hinting at. I think he's hinting at that it would have been easier for him to say, take up your mat and walk, because everyone in this room both knows and expects that he can heal. That's why the crowds have grown. They know he's a healer. They've already heard about this. But here's what they don't yet know. Here's what they have not yet become convinced of, that he is the Christ, that he is God's Messiah. The paralytic on the mat is not yet convinced of that, does not yet believe that at his deepest place. He knows he's a healer. He believes that. He's gotten desperate for healing, but he doesn't yet know he's the Christ. These scribes that are lining the wall, they don't yet know who he is. They think he's a blasphemer. Who are you, teacher man, miracle man? Who are you to say that you can forgive sins? They don't yet know he's the Christ. This is what Mark is building toward. Who is Jesus? Why are you seeking him? Why are you following him? Who do you say that he is? What are you coming to him for? It's likely not your truest, deepest need. See, they have yet to see who he truly is. And until we acknowledge who Jesus truly is, he can't meet our deepest needs. Which is why I think that Jesus first intended to take this paralytic man deeper. To show him that he needs to have his sins forgiven and his soul restored. But in the process, he's interrupted by the response of the scribes, who also need to see him for who he truly is. Not an unqualified blasphemer, but the very Son of God. And this is pretty much what he says in verse 10. Look at verse 10. But that you may know 
that the Son of Man, which has messianic flavor to it, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. They've already seen his authority in his teaching. They've already seen his authority over demons. They've already seen his authority over sickness. And now he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all. And what a moment, what a, what a mic drop kind of moment for Jesus here. The miracle demonstrates very clearly who Jesus says that he is. It further proves his authority. He demonstrates what he has been declaring, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that, his, that he is the son of God who has come to save the world and rule it, that he has come to meet our deepest needs. How does this paralytic man know now that his sins are forgiven? He gets up and walks. That's how he knows. The miracle proves the message. The, the, the actions of Jesus demonstrate what Jesus has been declaring. It de- demonstrates that he is bringing the kingdom. It demonstrates to us that Jesus will not fit into our version of our life, our vision for our life, but that he calls us to find our life in him. It demonstrates for us that Jesus does not exist for our little kingdom agendas but that he has come and he has lived and he has died and he has risen again to call us to true life that is only found in his kingdom. You see, we must see him for who he is and come to him not with demands, not with jobs, not with expectations, but with open hands and with humble hearts, seeing him for who he is. Church, there is nothing under the sun that can make you whole. There's nothing under the sun that can make you whole. Your kids, they won't do it for you. They will disappoint you, or you will crush them trying to make them make you whole. A job won't do it for you. Every job under the sun until Jesus returns is full of thistles and thorns. It won't do it for you. More money won't do it for you. The great theologian, the notorious B.I.G., what did he say? More money, more problems. It won't do it for you. More rest in the next vacation won't do it for you. They just need another one. The perfect person won't do it for you. And these are all good things. You hear me? These are all things that are gifts of grace. But when we take good things and we try and make them ultimate things, we end up ruining things. Only God can meet the deepest needs of our soul, can settle us and satisfy us. Pleasure won't do it for you. Substances and entertainment. I mean, living for pleasure, it's like, it's like eating junk food. It just makes you hungrier and hungrier. It makes your soul more and more unsatisfied. See, we must see Jesus for who he is, the only one who can satisfy the human soul, the only one who can set us free from our sins of chasing other lovers, and we must come to him. See, that is the greatest need beneath all of our other needs. Jesus, the living water, we must keep coming to him, drinking deeper and deeper. Jesus, the bread of life, we must turn from all other things and feast upon Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. See, Jesus wants to take us deeper, Jesus wants to take the paralytic deeper. Jesus wants to take the scribes deeper. Jesus wants to take the crowd deeper to see him for who he truly is, to see their greatest need. 
And I love how the scene ends. It's important. It's documented for us for a reason. Look at the end of verse 12. And so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Never seen anything like this. I love this because it's true. They truly had never seen anything like what had just happened. Perhaps they had seen a rogue miracle worker here or there. Perhaps they had seen come and go some charismatic teachers here and there. But never like this. Never a mighty miracle worker who heals and restores. Never a prophet who perceives hearts and teaches with such authority. And now, and now an accessible priest who forgives sins on the basis of faith and faith alone. They had never seen anything like this. They had never seen a person that can do what only God can do. And I want you to know that this is still true today. The world has never seen anything like Jesus. This world has never seen anything or anyone like Jesus. What a Savior He is who forgives our sins now when we come to Him. A Savior who, when, when He comes again, not only are our sins forgiven, but when Jesus comes again, sin itself will be no more. What a Savior. We've never seen anything like Jesus, one who satisfies the soul when we come to Him with our, the aches and cravings that we're experiencing, when we turn from the things of this world and come to Him. And when He comes again, the Bible tells us that we will be fully satisfied in the fullness of His presence for all eternity. We've never seen anyone like Jesus who heals and puts back together broken people. You know that when he returns again as king, the Bible tells us that every single one of us will get up off the mat, will get up out of the grave, and will walk with restored, healed, glorified bodies. We've never seen anyone like Jesus. What a Savior. I want to ask you this morning, what are you hungry for? What's your need? Will you go to Jesus with that, will you go to the, the, this Savior? What a mighty, wonderful Savior. Will you see your need beneath the need? Let's pray together. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. And that you've come, God, that you've made yourself visible to us in the person of Jesus. That you took on flesh. That you entered into human likeness. That you humbled yourself so that we might see the fullness of your glory and the greatness of your truth. You come in grace and truth. And we thank you, Jesus, that you did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, to meet our deepest, truest needs. And we confess to you, God, that we are a bunch of soul-hungry people, that we think we know what we need, but we humble ourselves before you and say, we don't really know. What we need is more of you. Would we be satisfied more in you? Holy Spirit, in this time of response and in this space, we ask that you would move in our midst, that you would do in each of us whatever it is that you would want to do this morning. That we would see what a savior you are. We would turn to you and receive forgiveness of our sin, that we would be set free of guilt and shame. That we would turn to you for our souls to be satisfied and we'd open our hands and humble our hearts before you. That we would trust you with our weakness whether it's in our body or in our mind. We would trust that to you, that Jesus, that you will strengthen us in our weakness. We thank you for what a Savior that, we, that you are. We love you, we honor you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.